Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Lots on the agenda today, from drinking booze in parks to the PM separation from his wife and Meta hitting delete on news. I also discuss healthcare funding, collecting ancient rocks, and the Festival of Friends. The JMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The heart of kind of the the voices of temperance, the voices of the anti-alcohol voices were lived, those voices were attached to people who lived in Toronto. And so it's, it's not surprising that Toronto has this legacy um, of, of being afraid of drinking. That is Dan Malik, Brock University professor and an expert in drug and alcohol regulation, reflecting on this new reality for 27 parks in Toronto. Now, right now it is a pilot program. And it's only in certain parks in the city, and it will go up until October the 9th. And I'm sure staff in Toronto will then, you know, compile a bunch of the statistics and see how it went to determine whether this is a a permanent fixture. Now, there are some rules as well. Not only are there just some parks, but you have to be at least 19 or older to drink, obviously. Drinking alcohol, not allowed within two meters of playgrounds and waiting pools. So you can't send your kid into the splash pad and, as I mentioned earlier, crack open a cold one. So the question is, is Hamilton contemplating a similar move? John Paldenko is the councillor for Ward 8 with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. JP, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. I'm glad we're talking about something more fun and more interesting than taxes. (laughs) Yes, it is a refreshing change. What what do you think of what uh, what Toronto is doing? I think it's an interesting proposal. I'm open to the suggestion uh, to explore what that might look like for Hamilton. I know in Toronto they were very careful that this is a pilot program, so they're going to collect data to see, you know, are there issues, are there problems? Um, are people actually doing uh, what, what they think that they're going to do, taking a, a beer or wine or something into a park? Um, but I think the reality in Ontario is how people use our parks and public spaces has evolved, especially since covid uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, families out with, you know, full-day events, bringing the picnic basket and lunch um, and, you know, sending the kids to the playground. And personally, I don't think it's a big deal if you were to, to have a beer or two while you're there, while your kids are on the playground or whatever, uh, where you're enjoying yourself at the park. Because for a lot of people in the city nowadays, uh, the park is really their backyard. So they're doing pretty much the same thing that we all do in our own private backyards. So it sounds like you're in favor of this, perhaps as a pilot program in Hamilton, or are you prepared to bring this to council? I think it's probably too late for this year. I'd like to see what the results are from Toronto. I know other Canadian cities are already doing this as well. I believe Montreal, Vancouver, Edmonton um, all have similar programs. So it'd be interesting to see what their uh, results are. I think informally, this is something that's already happening. I, I think we all know somebody that's, you know, put a, a beer in a travel mug and taken their kids to the playground. It certainly is, is common in other parts of the world. I mean, people that have traveled anywhere in Europe, um, you know, there are very different attitudes towards the alcohol and alcohol consumption. One of my best days ever was at a park in Germany where they actually have a beer garden built into the playground. It's the best park I've ever been to. Not saying we want to go that far, 
But, you know, as I said, attitudes around alcohol and alcohol consumption are changing and how people use our parks are changing. Could we, or perhaps in this case Toronto, be asking for some trouble, though? Because from a policing standpoint, there's obviously not a lot of officers at the moment. Do we want to dedicate police or even bylaw officers to make sure that everyone is, you know, keeping the peace? I think that's certainly a concern. Um you know, if public intoxication and uh, rowdy behavior are things that are, we already have uh, bylaws against, so that wouldn't change. Um, I think we would want to make sure that there are also, you know, adequate uh, garbage cans and washrooms available because we don't want people, you know, peeing in the bushes or leaving their empties behind. Uh, so, you know, there are concerns about uh, how it would actually look, how would it affect uh, our operational budget. Because if we are going to be providing garbage cans and, and washrooms, I mean, that does cost taxpayers a bit more money. So, you know, there, there are considerations um, as well as that, that public, um, public behavior component. My understanding from other cities that have tried this, that it, it really hasn't been an issue. But that's some of the data I think that we'd like to see from Toronto and other places that are already doing this. So if all goes well in Toronto, and I got about 30 seconds for this, if, if it's just a glowing, great, awesome experience, uh, are you going to say, hey, fellow councillors in Hamilton, we should do this? I'd certainly uh, talk to my colleagues on council and the mayor and see if there is a will uh, around council to put something forward. I don't think it's something that we're going to have, you know, a really contentious debate over. If, if, it, if it doesn't seem like there's unanimity around it, we probably wouldn't move forward. But it's certainly an idea that, uh, you know, I think it's time's come. Well, we'll see how it uh, transpires in TL and, and maybe, who knows, come next summer or the following, uh, we'll be doing the same here in The Hammer. JP, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. John Paul Denko is a councillor of Ward 8 with the City of Hamilton talking about boozing in parks. Not here in the city, but down the highway in T.O. We'll see how that uh, goes this summer. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this nearly broke the internet yesterday. Breaking news that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had uh, he and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, announced that they were separating after 18 years of marriage. It uh, certainly caught a lot of people's attention, garnered a lot of reaction as well. And now we're all thinking, OK, what happens now? If what, what if anything happens now? Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Daniel, thanks for waking up with us this morning. How are you? Good. Yourself? I'm good. First and foremost, is this is this a story? Should this be a story? Uh, I, I don't think so. It happens to regular people all the time. If Justin Trudeau wasn't a politician or even Justin Trudeau himself, I don't think we would be talking about this at the same level. Uh, let's face facts. It's not easy being a politician. You know, the, the job is divisive. You know, you throw social media in there. There's a lot of hate on social this is tough on an individual and their family. It, it absolutely is. And even Alistair McGregor, who's an NDP MP, tweeted out yesterday saying Politi politics is hard on politicians. And he's very sorry to hear that. And I think that's why we're not seeing any politicians seeing this as a political win for them, because they realize that it could happen to them. And it, it's, a, it's a hard place to be. Is there an impact on the Trudeau brand, right? Every politician, especially at that level, has a certain level of mystique or a brand associated mm -hmm. with them. Is there any impact on that? I don't think so. We saw the same thing happen to Trudeau's dad, and he was able to uh, get politically, uh, politically passed through this. 
Um, I don't think so. I think if anything, it makes them seem a little bit more human because we all we all know someone who has been divorced, if not ourselves. Agreed. Yeah, I th- you know, many Canadians are dealing with this right now. They're they're dealing mm-hmm. with a separation, or they're dealing with a divorce, or just dealing with marital issues. And this, I think, makes the PM a little more relatable uh, mm-hmm. than he was maybe yesterday or the day before. Absolutely. Like COVID was hard for all of us being on top of our spouses. <laughs> was not easy. Um, so I think a lot of Canadians can see themselves in the prime minister being the situation because marriage is not all sunshine and rainbows. There are hard times too. And if the prime minister is going through it, Hey, that, that makes it a little bit more normal for some people. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Daniel Perry, consultant with Summa Strategies. We're talking about uh, the Prime Minister and his wife announcing their separation yesterday after 18 years of marriage. One of the first things, and I had a lot of thoughts through through my mind when this news broke, but one of the things I thought about was, could this be his out? Or the opposite, could this make him more emboldened and more focused on winning the next election? Can you reflect on those two mindsets that he might have? That's a very good thought. Uh, definitely, if he was looking for an off-ramp, this would be a very easy one to drive off of and drive off into the sunset. But I don't think that's him. He made it very clear even beforehand he was looking to take on the next election. If anything, this just makes him want to do it even more to show people that he is a strong leader and that even if his personal life isn't going as well as one might hope, he's still able to lead the country and lead the Liberal Party. I don't think we've heard from any of the other political party leaders mm-hmm. like Pierre Poiliev with the Conservatives or Jagmeet Singh with the NDP or, or, or many of the others. How do you think they handle this? I think by not saying anything, they're handling it win. It's very clear there's no political win in this because this is someone's personal life. There are children involved in this. So I think leaving the politics out of it and just letting the family work through it and respecting their privacy because at the end of the day, not everyone in his family was elected. They should not be in the limelight. So I think giving them space is probably the best decision for everyone because we saw online some people's thoughts about it. It was very, very strong. And that's not necessarily what you want to be talking about uh, when it comes to Canada's democracy. So I think it's a, it was a really good call by both uh, leaders just to kind of not say anything, let the family have privacy and let them work the situation out for themselves. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to measure this, but how do you think Trudeau's staunchest supporters are going to take this news? I think if you like the person, this isn't going to change it. If you don't like him, this isn't going to change it. I don't think this (laughs) is going to be a decisive issue to divide Canadians. Again, a lot of Canadians have gone through divorce and know someone. So I think it might even help them in the long run if if we're looking to try to create a, a political win here. But I don't think so. I think people are just going to, hopefully respect his privacy and just let this run the course so we can actually talk about real issues. Yeah, that, that's the most important thing. Daniel, appreciate your time and, and waking up with us this morning here on GMH. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies chiming in on a separation announcements between the, the Prime Minister and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, separating after 18 years of marriage. Sounds like a very amicable split. They're going on vacation as a family coming up and... Uh, you know, with with three kids involved, it's very tough when children are involved. We know that. And if you're going through this as well, obviously there are resources that you can turn to. And, and whether or not this you know, makes the prime minister more relatable to you or not, uh, he's just human as well. It's just another example of this person being n- uh, not robot-like, even though you might not like the individual. 
Uh, he's certainly going through some tough times right now. So best of luck to the Trudeau family as they figure that out. Uh, we'll continue to follow on the political scene what this means. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We've been following this battle that has been brewing for a while now between big media companies in this country, like Chorus Entertainment, CHML's parent company, and others in this country who have been battling against some of the big tech companies, more or less Facebook and Twitter, Google would be in the mix, because what has happened over the years is they've taken our news, and we've gladly supplied them with our news, but we haven't benefited financially from that to to a certain extent. I mean, there is some benefit, obviously. But these big media companies are saying, hey, we, you know, we want a little bit more money because you're using our content. We should get paid for this content. Well, Meta, those in charge of Facebook, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg, has said, yeah, you know what? We're, we're not going to pay you at all. In fact, we're not only not going to pay you, we're going to permanently remove all this news from our platforms. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist and a good friend of the show as well and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, good morning. How are you? I'm really well. Great to be here with you, Rick. Are, are people going to notice anything different when they go to Facebook or Instagram? Uh, I mean, I think they are because we're already starting to see a lot of notifications from media organizations. They're putting up postings basically saying this is probably going to disappear fairly soon. It's going to be harder for you to get messages from us uh, because the algorithm is going to downrank everything that we post, everything that we share. So essentially, if you are a media organization, your Facebook page, uh, your Instagram presence uh, is basically going to no longer find an audience. Anything that's shared from there. Uh, will no longer be visible. And then if you decide to share something from a media organization on your feed, uh, it will also be uh, essentially tanked by the algorithm. No one's going to get to see it. So, uh, you know, that's 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 what we notice. Of course, once those notifications disappear, are we really going to remember what was in our feed or what wasn't in our feed? Probably not. Uh, and, and we've gotten into that habit of using social media as a way of discovering or surfacing content We'll simply adapt and we'll change and, and users will change their habits just like they have every single other time the algorithms have been tweaked or the tools have been changed. So this is just another change in a long string of them. Uh, you know, six months from now, we're all going to be shrugging our shoulders and going, what was that? Is this going to force us to change the way we utilize these social media feeds, whether it's Facebook or Instagram? I guess we can throw threads in there as well. See, I think that's where the good news lies, Rick, is that I think it will. I think it will sort of force us out of our kind of, you know, the lull that we had gotten ourselves into. I think we as end users had gotten somewhat lazy. Uh, you know, we sort of allowed social media to take over as the primary means of us finding out what's going on in our communities. We, you know, we would just naturally flip open Facebook and, and and scroll through our feeds, expecting everything to be there rather than bookmarking the sites that interest us, going to those websites, downloading the apps that we absolutely want to connect with, or, you know, building specific feeds of the reporters, the journalists, the other resources that we want to connect directly with. We sort of, we went from what used to be a very direct connection to the news before social media to uh, essentially Facebook and others deciding what it is that we get, that we do and do not see. Uh, we allowed them to determine our agenda and Maybe it's an opportunity now to go back to uh, a much more, uh, you know, in control scenario 
of how we discover news content. Yeah, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. And we're talking about Meta permanently ending news availability on its platforms here in Canada. Is this going to mean that people are going to say, you know what, I don't really need Facebook because I've been going there to get some of my news. I'll just go somewhere else. Is this a a shot at Facebook? Is this going to be not necessarily a death blow because it's got billions of users, but is this a negative for them? I've been saying that all along because, yeah, you're right. Face, face, like So Meta, of course, owns Facebook and Instagram, and it is the world's largest social media platform. Facebook on its own has 3 billion monthly active users. It's the, it's the biggest platform uh, by sort of size of audience. So you'd think it's kind of like the 800-pound gorilla, but the interesting thing is, is uh, it is aging out. Demographics are getting older. We know full well that the cool kids don't hang out on Facebook. They're using TikTok and Snapchat, other platforms. Uh, and Facebook's long-term long-term growth potential is really not that great, so much so that Mark Zuckerberg is getting the company out of social media, shifting into the metaverse and artificial intelligence. So, you know, you know, you you it, it all comes down to value. Why do we use Facebook? We, we we spend time on it. We hopefully get something out of it by removing media from the equation. Uh, it's one less reason for us to use these tools. Uh, and not that we were using Instagram in particular for news discovery. It's pretty pictures. Let's be clear. Uh, but, it, you know, Facebook, absolutely. I think a lot of people were using it because they kind of felt that it was kind of like uh, partially their newsfeed. But, uh, you know, now, you know, first, now we're going to remove the media content. If you look at your at your feed, if you've been paying attention to it over the last few months, it's been getting clogged with a lot of other stuff, too. AI is now recommending content that it thinks that you want to see. So, you know, take away news, add a whole lot of AI generated noise and suddenly is it really worth my time to be spending, you know, part of my day on this platform anymore? I think a lot of us increasingly are going to start saying no. I think we're going to start deciding maybe we should be doing other things with our time. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Carmi, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us this morning and enjoy your day. Great being here, Rick. Thank you. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist, knows his stuff when it comes to social media, websites, all things IT and internet related. Great resource as always. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. No matter the political stripe, government after government in this province has thrown a never ending amount of money, and we've seen it year after year after year, a never ending amount of money to try to fix Ontario's ailing healthcare system. For as long as I've been alive, for as long as I can remember, each and every government during budget time, promising to do this, that, and the other thing to fix our health care system. So uh, we're bringing on our next guest here, and I wholeheartedly agree with this individual because it is time for a new approach. Jay Goldberg is his name, is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jay, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great to be with you. Well, as I mentioned, every government has tried to fix this healthcare system, they've all applied, in my opinion, a tiny bandage on a big wound. It's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If you look at the numbers, uh, the, the, the Ray government, so 30 years ago, uh, was spending $17.5 billion on healthcare. And that worked out, if you adjust for population and inflation, to about $3,000 a person. We're now spending $5,500 a person and $81 billion. So spending has gone up in real terms by $2,500 a person 
and outcomes are twice as bad in healthcare as they were 30 years ago. It doesn't make any sense. You would think that spending more would equate into better health outcomes, and it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. So in 1993, Ontarians were waiting an average of nine weeks between going to see their family doctor and then finally being treated by a specialist. The average now is 20 weeks, and so that's more than double. So we've been spending all of this extra money for all of these years, and outcomes, as you see in the numbers, are twice as bad. You have an online article titled Ontario's Broken Healthcare System Needs Real Change, and I wholeheartedly agree. What kind of change do we need? What has to happen? Well, I think there's a few different things that have to happen. Um, you know, every time we talk about change in healthcare, I think a lot of people just get scared and point to the United States. I, I don't think that's the country we need to look to in terms of adjusting our healthcare system. There are countries like New Zealand, Australia, the Netherlands. They all have universal systems, but they all have more choice. And there's a few different things that we can look at here, whether it's being able to decide what kind of coverage you need. So if you're a kind of person who needs more extended health care that we actually don't have covered in our system right now. So physiotherapy, massage therapy, if you need dental coverage, if you decide that you don't need to purchase that through the system, those are all options. Another thing is mobility. So I happen to live in Brantford. I used to live in Toronto. I can't go see the doctors I used to see in Toronto anymore. One of the big things other countries do is have mobility so that people can go to wherever the line is shortest, even if that's not closest to home. So these are just a few things that other countries do uh, that I think we could experiment here in Ontario and Canada. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're talking about Ontario's healthcare system, how it's been ailing for years despite billions upon billions of dollars being thrown at it by government after government. This new way, or at least the, the proposed way that you have laid out here, that other countries are already uh, doing and are successful at and are seeing better health outcomes. Can it be done? Is there an appetite to do this in this province that is more effective from a health and cost perspective? So I think the evidence is, is quite clear in these other countries. Uh, the Netherlands, as I mentioned, as a model, spends far less per person on healthcare and has better outcomes on pretty much every metric if you look at a recent Commonwealth Fund report. So I think the evidence is very clear that, that other countries are doing better and are spending less money. The question is, do we have the will to do it here and can we do it within the Canada Health Act? And so I think the Ford government has started to make small steps in this direction by they're looking at having private clinics paid for by OHIP. So you would pay, as the government keeps saying, with your health card and not your OHIP card, but we would have private clinics deliver more things like uh, doing MRIs, doing CT scans, and potentially doing things like cataract surgeries, which Ontario seniors are waiting on average for five months to get their eyes fixed so they can see clearly. So I think we're seeing steps in that direction. But if we wanted to go further in, in, the, in the line of the Netherlands or other countries, I think there would have to be actual changes to the Federal Canada Health Act. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, can Ontario do this alone? Do we need that federal you know, rubber stamp of approval? We definitely would need a change in federal legislation if we wanted to go further. So if you wanted to give patients more choice in terms of the coverage they have, more choice in terms of where they can go, where the line is the shortest. And I frankly think we need to have a conversation throughout the country about 
uh, allowing patients countrywide, particularly if they're waiting for important uh, medical uh, services or even surgeries, flexibility to go throughout the country if need be and cover through the system. Uh, because we have, uh, you know, we have right now people waiting for hernia surgeries in Ontario. They're waiting an average of four months in pain. And, and of course, we've got our mental health epidemic. One in three Canadians have a mental health illness. Here in Ontario, you've got to wait 25 weeks to access proper care. So we definitely need change. Other countries have moved in that direction. There are other countries with very progressive systems, but they do allow for more patient choice more mobility, and and that's something that we really need to look for in changing the Canada Health Act. It is clear that Ontario and, well, some other provinces as well are uh, are limping along when it comes to trying to fix the health care system. Jay, really appreciate your time this morning and waking up with us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You can check out his... A commentary and his thoughts on the healthcare system online. Ontario's broken healthcare system needs real change. And I think we can all agree with that, but we want to see you know, a couple things. Yeah, we want to see things change. We want to see those wait lists get dramatically cut down. We also want to see a more accessible healthcare system in terms of being able to access it at a number of different points. And Jay kind of referenced that as well all while maintaining costs. That's an important part of this equation uh, in uh, in that regard, too. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Waking you up on another fantastic day in our city and around the world. That is likely the case as well. At least that is the hope for a Brock University professor who is going around the world in search of some ancient rocks. And there's a particular purpose to this. And uh, we're going to talk to this professor right now. She's a professor of Earth Sciences at Brock University and also a participating scientist in the Mars 2020 mission. Her name is Marie Schmidt, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marie, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well, thanks. All right, so you are traversing the planet looking for ancient rocks. What exactly are you looking for? Well, I'm I'm part of a, a, a group of people who are going to particular sites around the world um, looking for rocks that uh, are similar to rocks that have been uh, that have been sampled by the Perseverance rover on Mars, so that we can um, have a really good analog for testing our technologies and our procedures uh, for when those samples eventually come back to Earth. Okay, so where have you been, and where are you going? Okay, so uh, so far. <laughs> Um, there are five sites that have been identified, and I am visiting two of them. Um, so one of the sites that I've been to is called the Isle of Rum in Scotland. We were sampling a, uh, a an igneous rock there. It's a crystalline igneous rock that contains the minerals olivine and pyroxene, which probably don't mean much to most people, but they're <laughs> very abundant on Mars. Um and so this, there's a particular ratio of those minerals and chemistry of those minerals um, that, that is a, a nice match to what we see in Mars. I was just going to say the olive rum sounds like a delicious place to be, uh, but you're also going somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so, the Isle, so let me just expand a little bit on the Isle of Rum. Okay. It is, it's in Scotland. So it's off the coast of Scotland in the uh, on the western coast. It's uh, it's in the Hebrides, and it's you can only get there by ferry. So it's it's a neat little place. 
Um, there's only 40 people who live there and, and not many people visit it. So it was kind of a, it was a neat place to visit. Wow. Um, and then the second place that I'm going to be going is in southeastern Oregon uh, in the United States where there are very thick uh, lava flows that are uh, nice and crystallized in the interior and they match other rocks that we've seen on Mars uh, and that we sampled on Mars. Um, so I'll be visiting Oregon in October. That sounds very exciting. Now, how were these places identified? What makes them uh, prime locations to find these ancient rocks? Well, so these these uh, sites are places that have been well characterized, you know, by other geologists. And so what we what we did was we assessed um, just you know reading papers and looking at geological maps and looking at uh, minerals that are or rocks that are found in museums and, and different rock collections, and then comparing those with uh, the rocks we've, uh, we've seen on Mars using the, uh, the, the data that are derived from the rover. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Marie Schmidt, a professor of Earth Sciences at Brock University, also a participating scientist in the Mars 2020 mission. She and a bunch of other colleagues are going around the world in search of ancient rocks that will help us one day uh, handle rocks that are coming back from Mars. And that is scheduled to happen uh, sometime in 2033. Can you describe the rocks that you've collected? Are they... Are they like a watermelon size or the size of a, a baseball, a marble? Can you describe them? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so uh, we are, the goal is to actually collect between 200 and 300 kilograms of rock for each site. So it's a lot of material. And some of those rocks are, you know, um, I, I think uh, the biggest one that we sampled was about 70 centimeters across. So big and it's really heavy. Mm. Um, and the reason why we need to collect really big samples is that uh, the, the engineers want to be able to drill into the rocks and collect similar kinds of samples to the ones that we've, we've, um, we've collected on Mars. Now Canada's we, known, we, sorry to interrupt, but Canada's known to have the, the, the Canadian Shield. Um, is, are any yeah. of these substances found in Canada? Uh, actually, we're not going to be sampling any place in Canada, but there was there was a site in Quebec that was uh, we considered, and we may go back out there uh, later on to to take a look at those. Um, but we'll see uh, we'll see what what else the rover finds. Uh, there, and there's definitely a potential for having a Canadian site in, uh, included in these uh, analog samples. Nice. What, what's the most exciting part about this? Well, for me, it's like it's the closest we get to the rocks on Mars <laughs> because uh, so, so these rocks, we can actually handle them, right? I can smack it with a hammer. I can pick it up. I can scan it with a hand lens and, and really see the, the rock textures. And then I can bring the rocks back to my lab and analyze them. Um, whereas on, for the Rover there, I feel like I know those rocks really well, but in reality, you know, it's coming through, um, through the instruments that the rover is, is using and then uh, getting the data comes back to Earth. And so it's a very, you know, long, long distance. Um, I can't handle those rocks. So it's, it's nice to be able to, uh, to get up and uh, personal to the, to the rocks that are similar to those on Mars.
This is really fascinating stuff, and it is happening uh, oh so close to home with a Brock University professor involved uh, in um, going around the planet, basically, to get to, uh, to find some of these ancient rocks. Uh, Marie, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. You're welcome. Marie Schmitz, what an amazing story. Professor of Earth Sciences at Brock University and also a participating scientist in the Mars 2020 mission. Much smarter than I in terms of ancient rocks on this planet. Who would have thought that you know, some rock formations, whether it's in Scotland or Oregon or even here in Canada, as you mentioned, the Quebec region, would be oh so close or as close as possible to what would be found on the red planet. Kind of cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That sounds like a cool song all these days by Jeremy Albino, who just so happens to be performing this coming weekend at the Festival of Friends as it returns to Gage Park with tons of great music, food, fun for the whole family. Joining us now is Jeremy Albino, singer from Toronto, who's going to be at the festival this weekend. Jeremy, good morning. How are you? Morning, how are you doing? I'm good. Is this your first Festival of Friends? Yeah. How are, how are you feeling? How are you preparing for these for this show? Uh, I'm excited. Uh, I've heard a lot about it. I got one of my one of my bandmates is from Hamilton, so he's like, I've been going to Festival of Friends since uh, since I was a kid. So he's like, get ready because it's gonna be a good time. So, <laughs> um, yeah. What can attendees expect to hear when you're on the stage? Uh, well, I just put out a record called Tuesday Hide and. Uh, I'll be singing a lot of songs from that record and uh, some some from my first record too. But yeah, it's just a, a energetic and fun, passionate show. I'd say. <laughs> I I always I'm always intrigued by how people do the things they do. So when you're getting ready for and you're performing Friday night, when you're getting ready for this show, are you are you rehearsing every day? Is it a few times a day? How does that work? What's your routine like? Uh, we usually, I mean, we've. I, with my band, we've kind of we all kind of know the songs pretty well, so we we usually just kind of have a little catch up before uh, beforehand. So I've done maybe we got I did rehearsal last week and we just did one the other night and and then we just play the show. Yeah, you know? so you're re- you're ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna hit the stage uh, Friday night at eight o'clock, and Bahamas is gonna play at nine thirty. Uh, some of the other acts, uh, Maddie Simpson, uh, the Whaler is gonna be at the Festival of Friends. It goes from August fourth to the sixth at Gage Park, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. What drew you to music? What was that calling for you to say, "Hey, you, you, you've got what it takes to be a singer"? Well, I don't know. I, I feel like I was pretty lucky. I, I, I somehow was able to just do a bit of that singing and at first it was always just uh it was just something i really did for myself and and once i started performing and kind of i started playing open mics here and there and people really seemed to connect with it at all and um i think the main thing was once people started kind of booking me for gigs and and paying me for it i was like oh maybe i should try this out and, uh, <laughs> full like as a more of a full-time thing because i always kind of would do it just just on my own for myself you know uh but uh i guess yeah one thing leads to another and i i was lucky enough i got a record deal and i was like i guess this could be a thing i could be doing full-time you know so that's kind of the different there's a lot of different steps that kind of brought me to making the decision to kind of 
jump in full time, you know? I absolutely know. Yeah. Jeremy Albino is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, singer who's going to be performing Friday night at 8 at the Festival of Friends. Lots of food, lots of fun to be had at Gage Park this weekend, as well as the festival returns. When would you say you figured it out in terms of your 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 vocal prowess, how to make music, I mean, like really make music, working with others in the band. When did it finally click for you? I don't know. I'd say I'm always still learning a lot about that stuff. But uh, early on, I guess I, I, I uh, put my first record out in 2019 and I definitely learned a lot. Like before that, I hadn't really played with a band or anything, but I, I had my songs and and I, I, I was kind of doing a one-man band kind of uh, thing with my music, and I ended up having to make a record, and I got a band together, and I mean, I work with different producers and different musicians, and, and you, I, honestly, every time you, you kind of work with different people, you, you learn something new, and um, but yeah, I mean, it was pretty early on that I knew that I could I could sing a song and 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 share it with people but uh honestly yeah i'm always learning and uh even now and i think i always will be learning on about music and and how to how to how to make it and connect with people you know it wasn't that long ago that when you were you know forming a band you it would either be you know people you grew up with and you would you know jam out in your garage or your basement uh, or if you needed someone you would put you know an ad in the newspaper to say hey we need a you know a drummer or whatever the case is how do you do that nowadays? Is it social? Do you tweet someone say, "Hey, I need a bass, <laughs> I need a bass player"? No, actually, now nowadays, I mean, when it is always, it is kind of tough sometimes finding finding new players when I when I need them because uh, I don't know. I've got I've got kind of my main set of guys, but sometimes they can't do it, and you got to find someone else. But usually, it's just I, I know enough musicians now that that you kind of just start asking around and seeing who's 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 uh down to, to down to play and and uh yeah it's uh, I kind of got my network of musicians that if there's anything you kind of just ask someone and they're like oh yeah this guy's a good this guy's be good for your your fit well with you and and then you just kind of reach out and and do that but yeah that's basically it like Toronto, like the Canadian music scene is pretty small so you, you end up meeting a lot of you end up knowing most of the people. <laughs> <laughs> Last one for you. We've got about a minute. What's next for you? After you play this, you know, Festival of Friends, what's next on the docket? Right after Festival of Friends, I'm heading down uh, down to Nashville to do some, some work. I'm writing and working on my next record. And then uh, next weekend, the weekend after Festival of Friends, I'm heading to Edmonton for Edmonton Folk Festival. And uh, at the end of August, I'm playing... Uh, the Limestone City Blues Festival in Kingston, Ontario, and uh, and once the fall comes, October, I'm I'm doing my first headline tour of the U.S. So I'm doing East Coast run, and uh, going starting from like New York all the way down to Atlanta and like the South, and then coming back up. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's uh, I'm excited to just make music and, and share it with the people. Sounds like a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun this weekend at Festival of Friends. Go check out Jeremy Albino. He's going to play Friday night at 8 and a whole other great artist on tap as well. Jeremy, thanks for the time. Good luck. 
All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you, see you Friday. You got it. And you can check out all the Festival Friends schedule online, festivaloffriends.ca. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.